And good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema just before the U.S. Thanksgiving. And I'm going to give you a little shout out to Deadly Grounds Coffee. Everyone thinks because you're a zombie, you don't know good coffee. Well, they're wrong. We have very active lifestyles. It's not all wandering the countryside aimlessly or scaring passing motorists. And we all love a good cup of joe. And there's only one brew that gets my seal of approval. Deadly Grounds Coffee is my guilty pleasure. Bold, robust, delicious. It's coffee that can wake the dead. <laughs> With over a dozen different roasts and flavors, Deadly Grounds can satisfy the most finicky of coffee addicts. The aroma is so intoxicating. It brings all of my neighbors out of the woodwork. Deadly Grounds Coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. It's good to get a little deadly. Use the front door! Oh, they're so disgusting. Well, Ghostbusters Afterlife has dropped in theaters, and over the weekend it's done pretty well, from what I understand, over 60 million at the box office. And again, just real fast, a disclaimer that cinema is not film reviews, but I'm going to make it very clear. I'm going to be talking about this film and what I see as the uh, fabricated anger. Again, I don't know why people get so angry over this shit. Um, However, uh, there will be spoilers. So if you have not seen the film and you don't want anything ruined for you, it's time to hit stop now. So I went to see the film in theaters. And, uh, you know, look, it really doesn't matter what I think, but I will say I enjoyed it overall. But there are a couple things that I want to go over about this because we are seeing something interesting in the filmmaking process. And that's what this episode is about today. And the number one word today's episode to go Sesame Street wise is brought to you by the word nostalgia. There's no way to talk about Ghostbusters Afterlife uh, without talking about, of course, the original film. It's 1989 sequel, which overall this film ignores, just so you know that. Uh, there are some brief tips of the hat to it, especially that Dan Aykroyd is working in his occult bookstore. Uh, however, overall, um, not much there about Ghostbusters 2, no mention of Vigo or the Statue of Liberty, the Pink Slime, none of that. Uh, they, they just kind of pretended that that one didn't happen. And that dovetails right into then the 2016 Ghostbusters film, which is why we got that film. Because of the way that Ghostbusters 2 was made and the poor taste that it put in a lot of people's mouths, including Bill Murray, and then add to it that Bill Murray had his falling out with Harold Ramis, Uh, which we will get to. Uh, That's why we got Ghostbusters 2016. And I'm going to talk about that momentarily. However, I want to make it very clear here that I am dispelling the myths of racism and misogyny and sexism for the failure of 2016. 2016 failed. The Ghostbusters 2016 failed uh, because it had a shitty script and lackluster directing. And again, if you liked it, good for you. But overall, was it a great film? No. In fact, I will argue that it really wasn't much of a film at all. It showcased a bunch of really wonderfully talented people. And while people always go for uh, Melissa McCarthy, I am all about Kate McKinnon. So it had nothing to do for me or for many, many people that this was a female-driven Ghostbusters. And we'll get into how I feel that a lot of that stigma could have been reduced 
by just a very, very simple act. And I've talked about this in my previous episodes on remakes and reimaginings. We have reached a crucial time in our pop culture history. And for the first time, we can not only wax nostalgic, but we can recreate that nostalgia and we can recycle it. We can even cannibalize it, if you will. So bear with me as I try to explain that. Look, growing up, when I was growing up in the 70s before the 80s hit, uh, the the 70s were waxing nostalgic for the 50s. And and I've talked about this in numerous episodes, especially that's coming up even in my, my book, This Time It's Personal, which is dropping next fall. Every generation goes through that period where they, they look back fondly upon the things that they had as children growing up. And that's where the good old days come from and stuff like that, that we, we forget the bad and we just embrace the good. And, and while growing up in the 70s, it was all about the 50s and on TV, it was Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and music was even hearkening back to some 50s feel. Movies were, were definitely going down that path with American Graffiti and Grease and, uh, you know, The Wanderers and, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. So that part we understand, but we never had a chance other than creating a show like Happy Days or something like that. We weren't able to go back and so accurately recreate our nostalgia. So bear with me and follow me on this. So I'm going to use some examples here. I'm going to use Jurassic World, Terminator Genesis, and even the Star Wars Disney films. And, and here's why. In Jurassic World, which again I've talked about in my previous episode on remakes and reimaginings and repackagings, Jurassic World is not so much a reboot or a sequel as it is a cannibalization of all the other films. Jurassic World is not a sequel. It is basically a remake of Jurassic Park and combines all the other films together to the point where I've said on previous episodes, you can go on YouTube and find the direct comparisons where they recreated scenes almost shot for shot. And they play the original Jurassic Park against Jurassic World and everything is staged almost exactly the same. And they did this in Terminator Genesis as well. They go back and they recreate the fight with T and T2 with uh, the T1000 and blah, 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 blah. They do all of this to recreate these scenes. So it's a new kind of thing. It isn't going back and, and thinking about something or talking or mentioning about something. They are literally recreating something. And they did this even in Disney Star Wars. They, they recreated characters and they use CG to, to really bring back that nostalgia to hit you all around your senses. It's all recreated in deep detail. This is more than nostalgia. It's like nostalgia on steroids. So there's nothing wrong with nostalgia. So I'm stating that at the start of this with Ghostbusters Afterlife because one of the number one things I heard is that it pays too much lip service to the fans. So, and and there is some merit to that. But is that inherently wrong? So, like I said, the 70s were nothing more than one gigantic Valentine to the 50s. And the 80s carried that right along. I mean, look at who we elected as president of the United States. We had Ronald Reagan, who was a direct throwback to the 50s. And what was one of the number one box office hits of the 80s? 
Back to the Future. We get the nostalgia part, but even going back, for example, in Back to the Future, they didn't recreate Ronald Reagan. They didn't recreate literal stars that were playing on the screen along with the present day actors. So this is very, very different what we're seeing now. In many ways, nostalgia is a way of mourning for what is now gone. And I think, ladies and gentlemen, that is the center and the soul, if you will, to Ghostbusters Afterlife. I saw Fright Night 1985 back in theaters in 1985. And Fright Night is in my top five of all time favorite horror movies. But I have to admit, there's nothing really scary about the movie for me. I mean, I love it, but I don't find it particularly scary. I mean, maybe if you're a little kid, you might. But overall, Fright Night is fun. And why is it fun? It's fun because I grew up with those old horror movie hosts. I understood when Peter Vincent was acting badly on the screenshots of his old movies. I knew what the puns were. Peter and Vincent, Peter Cushing, Vincent Price. I grew up with Dr. Shock and Uncle Ted. I grew up with all of these things that Tom Holland was so eloquently putting together as a goodbye letter to an era that was quickly disappearing. Home video and cable were taking away all of those things. I mean, Elvira and Joe Bob Briggs, and you know, if you want to use Svengoolie, they're they're the last of this dying breed. They're the last of an era of a time that that all of us miss. Many of us miss that can relate to that time. As I wrote, and the reason why I wrote in my book coming up is a lot of kids today will never experience a movie the way that we did. 30, 40, even 50 years ago. It's an entirely different time. The technology is different and the viewing experience is entirely different. And to make my point, in Ghostbusters Afterlife, McKenna Grace calls Dan Aykroyd. She gets one phone call in the police station after uh, going crazy in town trying to capture a ghost and almost destroying the town. Grace gives a call to Dan Aykroyd in his Ray's Occult Bookshop. And for some reason, Ray answers, even though he picks up the phone and says, we're closed. I I just don't know why you don't let the phone ring or most of all, let it go to voicemail or an answering machine. But anyway, and Ray's bookstore deliberately looks like it's still in 1989. It it hasn't changed at all. And that's deliberate. And when the, the hand picks up the phone, it's a very puffy and much older Dan Aykroyd answering the phone. And they go back and forth. Now, I don't know why McKenna Grace did not just say, I'm Egon Spengler's granddaughter. We have to go through a lot. See, that that is one of the drawbacks to Ghostbusters Afterlife. It takes a long time to get to where we want it to go and where we know it's going. Why can't we just get there a little faster? But I digress. Let me get into that later. Dan Aykroyd on the phone with, with Egon's granddaughter basically says that, you know, look, The 80s were a different time. Ronald Reagan was president and everything was good. Right there is the heart of Ghostbusters Afterlife and why so many people were sitting in that theater with me. That's exactly how they felt. That sums it all up for the 80s movies and 80s horror. 
That's why so many love 80s horror. You know, I saw an argument to say, well, you know, 80s horror was really the best horror. It was so well made. No, there was a lot of shit made in the 80s. But it was the historical context around that time that made all of this just seem better. So a quick look at Ghostbusters 1984. Why did it work? It worked because, again, the 80s were a time that if you didn't live through them, you have no context. You have no experience. It was an odd convolution of both liberal and conservative ideals that swirled together in what seemed to be kind of like this weird decade-long party. Uh, We had, again, President Reagan, who was a very definite conservative throwback. And yet we had at a time of cocaine and Saturday Night Live and MTV and rock and roll. It was a very, very weird time. And Ghostbusters 1984 tapped into that. Ghostbusters 84 was a good time. When you're sitting in the theater back then and you watched it, you could tell the actors were just having a good time. They had a blast. They they almost couldn't even keep the smiles off their faces while they were delivering their lines. That's how much fun it was. And Ghostbusters 1984 was irreverent. It had some questionable things. It wasn't a kid's movie, and it wasn't trying to manipulate you emotionally. The number one goal of Ghostbusters 1984 was to make you laugh. The script was fun, the directing was fun, the imagination was fun, the effects were fun, and the times were fun. Then it took five years to get a sequel. By that point, the Reagan 80s were coming to a close. It was 1989. And Reagan's impervious stature had been dented a little bit through Iran-Contra and a number of other things that that took place where we also were starting to realize that, that Reagan may not be there all mentally as well after the 1984 election. So the country was gearing up for a different mood. Reagan was on his way out. George Bush was in kind of thing. It was just different now. George Bush was just really nothing more than what we wanted to continue with Reagan. He was, he was Reagan part two and really not much of a sequel. So Ghostbusters 2 was a sequel for sequel's sake. It, it was the bad version of Ghostbusters. And I don't care if you liked it or not, that's fine. And you may disagree with me, that's fine. Art is subjective. But the film's opening weekend dropped by almost 40 to 50% by the second weekend because audiences realized, oh, this one isn't going to be as much fun. The script was a mess and and all of it as well, it directly impacted a Ghostbusters 3 by keeping Bill Murray away from doing another entry. Even Bill Murray has disowned Ghostbusters 2, which is why I suspect that very little, if anything, of Ghostbusters 2 is mentioned in Ghostbusters Afterlife. Now, Ghostbusters 2, when you hear Bill Murray talk about it, it was like, yeah, we were kind of sitting around and talking about, oh, we should do another one. And these ideas went back and forth. And however, yada, 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 it's not the film I signed up for. I I don't know how that happens. I, I can't imagine Bill Murray not having some kind of creative input on the sequel to the highest grossing comedy of all time. I, I really doubt that highly. But regardless, we didn't get a Ghostbusters 3 anytime soon until now. How does Ghostbusters 2 relate to 2016? Well, between that time after the 1989 film of Ghostbusters 2 and Murray having a bad taste in his mouth, Murray went on to work with Harold Ramis on um, 
uh, Groundhog Day. And they had a falling out, apparently. This is at least what I've read and I know. I do not know both men. I did not know Harold Ramis. And therefore, I, I don't know the whole story. Only Harold Ramis and Bill Murray really know the true story. However, the origins of the feud seem to have started when Ramis actually had the nerve to call Bill Murray out for his very bad behavior and punctuality and just really you know poor workmanship on Groundhog Day. In other words, Bill Murray had sunglasses and was acting like a big star and Ramis was like, look, we have a movie to do. Murray didn't like it. They had a falling out and they didn't talk until basically Ramis died. So if that is accurate, I don't know. I'm sure, again, if I really wanted to look into further details, I just don't want to give it all that time. The fact is, is both men had a very personal falling out and which I guess Ramis tried to patch up a number of times, but Murray wasn't having it. And that came from Ramis's own daughter who had said that. In the end, apparently both men did patch it up. However, it was apparently a little too late to do that. Too little, too late kind of thing. So without a Ghostbusters 3, a legitimate Ghostbusters 3, we got the 2016 film. Now, Bill Murray, and I've talked about this in my previous episode, Bill Murray said that he would not do a Ghostbusters 3 unless it was of really high quality because of the the poor reception of Ghostbusters 2. And yet, Murray and Aykroyd and Hudson all turned out for Ghostbusters 2016 in these stupid, irrelevant cameos that serve no purpose other than simply to say they're the original Ghostbusters and to lend some kind of credence to the film to give it legitimacy so it performed at the box office. And you know what was really painful was to watch the original three go out on the press circuit and talk about the film in a positive light. You could tell that it was almost like a shotgun wedding. They, They were doing this so totally against their will. None of those men believed in that film. But they did their contractual obligation. And it was only later that Dan Aykroyd really talked some shit about the film's director. But 2016 also lacked historical context. It was made because Sony could make it and they couldn't make a legitimate Ghostbusters 3. So they thought, well, let's see if lightning will strike again. The problem is 2016's film had nothing to say. You got this great cast of very funny women and it doesn't matter if it's women. It could have been men. This movie would have sucked. If you would have just taken out the women and put them in that same script with the same direction with men, the movie would have still sucked. It doesn't matter whether it's a vagina or penis. It doesn't matter. But the talk of the uh, early online hatred, you know, of, of all of that, like people talking about Leslie Jones and, and, you know, saying race, look, that's all inexcusable. I'm not denying that that shit happened. But the film did not die because of sexism, misogyny, or racism. It died because it had a terrible script. And Ghostbusters 2016 is fun if you're like six years old. And that's really about it. But we got 2016 because we couldn't get a Ghostbusters 3, a legitimate Ghostbusters 3. So now we have our Ghostbusters 3. And instead of sticking the Roman numerals behind it or a number three behind it, we call it Afterlife. And in many ways, that title is appropriate. 
Ghostbusters Afterlife is really a total switch in tone. It has none of the tone of the first two films. And I don't know if that's a bad thing. I think actually it's a good thing. But really the, the problem that I have with the new tone isn't that it isn't so much like the previous Ghostbusters films, but that it's too much like Stranger Things. And I think some of you are sitting there going, thank you, Harrison. Because really what we ended up in Ghostbusters 3, Afterlife, is we really got Stranger Things with the three original Ghostbusters showing up at the end. That's really the feel that we got. I also use this comparison, that Ghostbusters 1984 was kind of like how Batman 1989 was versus Ghostbusters Afterlife being much like Batman Begins. Do you follow that analogy? Ghostbusters 1984 is to Batman 1989 as Ghostbusters Afterlife is to Batman Begins. That's the connection that I made. It's, it's got a much more realistic tone um, and less, you know, that smarmy kind of inside joke feel that the first two films did. I mean, I always felt that Bill Murray just always had some kind of inside joke that he was just busting to tell the audience, but he just didn't want to. He always had that look on his face. The entire tone and look of Ghostbusters Afterlife is very different, like I said, and that is okay. The problem that I'm hearing people bitching about is, is that this tone is too heavy on nostalgia. Before we go there and talk about that, I mean, Jason Reitman is to be commended for taking a totally different take because, again, a lot of you out there are like, fuck the remakes, fuck the reboots, give us something different. Okay, Reitman took a different tone on this and the previews made it very, very clear that this was going to have a very different tone. It was not going to be like 1984 or 1989. And that's what a good sequel should do. It should take us into different directions. For me, the counterbalance to that is, yes, it's different in tone, which I love. However, it's too close in tone to Stranger Things. There is no mistake that Finn Wolfhard is cast and, and McKenna Grace bears as much a resemblance to Millie Bobby Brown's Eleven as she does to Harold Ramis's granddaughter. I mean, the casting is great. She really does look like she could be, actually, she looks like she could be Harold Ramis's daughter. That's how good of casting it was. And the girl is fantastic in the role as Egon's granddaughter. However, to draw the correlation to Eleven and also Mike from Stranger Things is no mistake and it's not a coincidence. Nostalgia is the lifeblood of Stranger Things. Without the 80s and nostalgia, Stranger Things is silly and means nothing. And that's really the same with Ghostbusters Afterlife. But now through the magic of CG, we can create almost anything. And in a few years, we can recreate everything. I see whole movies being recycled, old stars brought back to life, and see the end of this film as, as the example of this with, with Harold Ramis. And I see souped up versions of whatever we want. We can go back and do whatever we want. You, like what George Lucas did with Star Wars, the original trilogy, adding all the digital effects. We can do that and more. So we can now take our nostalgia and we can manifest it. And that's both good, but it's also very disingenuous because it's not the same. It's not the same as those times. You can echo those times but it's like living in the matrix. 
It's like, you know, when, when you sit there and, and the guy says, you know, like I'm eating this steak and right now my mind says this steak is great, but this is nothing more than ones and zeros. There is no taste to this steak. And sometimes that's the case with nostalgia. You can't go back. You can't immerse yourself back into that world. You can't be 14, 15, 16 again. You can't. And I think therein lies the conflict, which I'm going to be getting to, as to why there is so much anger sometimes with these nostalgia-driven films. Now, the danger in Ghostbusters Afterlife is, is not getting anything new or original. The pretext of nostalgia creates an almost perfect defense mechanism. You don't dare criticize Ghostbusters Afterlife or even a film like Halloween Kills because of its nostalgia, its sentiment, and its truly loving and sweet tribute at the end for Ghostbusters Afterlife to Harold Ramis. How can you talk bad about that? I mean, I got to tell you, man, sitting in the theater, man, I had tears in my eyes. And and I, I was watching that ending going, oh, man, but I'm not just having tears in my eyes for Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis, I never met the man. I don't know him. He wasn't a personal friend of mine. And I never really got choked up over the passing of celebrities because really what the passing of celebrities really means, it is just another mile marker for our own mortality. You get this nostalgia, this very heavy nostalgia. And, and, and again, Ghostbusters Afterlife, this is the fuel that it runs on. This is what fuels the proton packs. Um, it, it's just amazing how strong the nostalgia is. But the anger comes from the overuse of this nostalgia. And, and here's an example. I think maybe this might be close. It's like getting mad at that sweet family member who got you a gift. It could be grandma, it could be an uncle, it could be grandpa. It could be a really shitty gift. It could be a bad handmade gift. You ever get those? Or something that you absolutely didn't need or already had. But you so love the relative that gave you this and who did this for you because you knew that the gift was given and gotten out of love. You don't say, I fucking hate this. You smile, you say thank you, and you sometimes give a warm hug because that's really the right thing to do. I think that's somewhat fair to say about Ghostbusters Afterlife. It's not the perfect gift, and it's really not what everything we wanted. It's not everything we wanted, and it's not really something we needed, but it was given to us as such a sweet gesture that you almost really can't bitch about it. So that's where I think the conflict comes in. There's anger that comes here because we want to love it, and yet there are things about it we don't love, but you can't really get angry over it because it was meant with all the sincerest of intentions. Does that make any sense? I couldn't help but wonder what Bill Murray's reaction was to the ending of this film. If you've seen the film, you know what I mean. I imagine he harbors some guilt and remorse over his falling out with his best friend, Harold Ramis. Whatever the exact reasons, like I said, only the two men really know, it did result in no Ghostbusters 3. But I wonder what Murray thought when he was sitting in the screening room. I'm, I'm sure they previewed this. And he sits there and he watches it. And he sees that, you know, that he sees Harold Ramis standing beside him again in this ghost form. And they don't let Ramis speak, which I think was brilliant. I thought it was a terrific choice 
not to have Harold Ramis speak because he didn't have to. His mere presence there said so much. And that is a really big props to Jason Reitman and the screenwriters that they didn't make Egon speak. But man, the way they aged him and the recreation of him, the I don't know if they, I'm sure what they did is they used a, a real actor and then they used CG with face swap and that deep fake stuff. And I'm telling you, it looks like Harold Ramis aged naturally and is in this force ghost kind of feel. And that's okay. But man, was it such a sweet and fitting tribute to him. But that argument that Bill Murray had with Harold Ramis ostensibly makes Bill Murray to blame for Ghostbusters 2016. The other problem is with all of this, you have this deep nostalgia that at the end, you really can't criticize it. I mean, the three original guys show up. The Ecto-1 is there. The kids are doing their kids thing and oh, they're all out of control and they don't know what to do and they're trying to do the right thing and fight Gozer, the, the, the bad you know, guy, woman, monster, it. But the problem is it takes place in a backyard, in a cornfield, like on the edge of a cornfield. This, this is where the big climax takes place and the Ghostbusters just kind of step in. Like they don't run, they don't move around. There is no, uh, you know, Gozer throwing them left and right. I mean, she, she does something where they get thrown back against the car kind of thing. But to me, as a filmmaker... It kind of smacked of a one-day shoot. That's what it was. Okay, get the three of you in here, and we're going to shoot you. Maybe Dan Aykroyd gave a second day to shoot the uh, the bookstore scene. But to me, it felt like they all just kind of showed up, except for Ernie Hudson, and I'll get to that in a moment. But the end of the 1984 film, you know, had you know, Mr. Stay Puffed and this giant demonic temple on the top of a skyscraper and the Ghostbusters rising up to the skyscraper to defeat the monster at the top. And and even in Ghostbusters 2, we had a giant walking of statue, you know, walking Statue of Liberty and we had the pink slime running in the sewer system below New York. And we had, you know, in the first film, we had that Sheena Easton looking Gozer, which Gozer the Gozerian pretty much looks the same in this one to meet our boys for one last round. But it takes so long to get there and where we know we are going. Maybe it was a directorial or, or screenwriting choice to say, you know, we're, we're going to scale this down. We're going to give you the opposite of what the other two films did because both of them had, like I said, these giant epic climaxes. We're going to give you something simple, and more human and more heartfelt because at the end it is very personal. And personal in a lot of ways, more than I think any audience can really understand. I think there is something far more personal going on for Bill Murray and Harold Ramis at the end of this film. And maybe that's a reason why Jason Reitman didn't really give us this show-stopping special effects ending. Maybe it is. We don't have to love it. It's hard to hate it because... It's just, again, it's it's that gift that that really well-intentioned, sweet relative gave you. Like I said, sadly, you know, two of the three Ghostbusters, they, they just showed up for that day shoot and they, they shot their shit and they got out. I mean, Murray, really, I mean, you take all this aside. Take your personal love or whatever for the film aside. I mean, Murray looks tired and bored. And Aykroyd does his thing, but he seems tired as well with... Uh, 
okay, I got to do this kind of feel to his line delivery. You, you'll see what I mean when he, he demands a gozer leave, which is a direct reference back to the original film where, you know, Bill Murray said something like, yeah, Ray, that, that ought to do it. Something like that. Well, we get something like that. It just all feels phoned in. The only one who seemed truly glad to be there and who finally got his due as a character was Ernie Hudson. Winston turned into the heart of the Ghostbuster team. And he's the guy now who could ultimately save and resurrect the Ghostbusters. Maybe that's what they have in mind. And folks, you need to stay all the way till the end. I won't tell you the two, there are two post-credit sequences here. Well, one's a mid-credit sequence and the other is a post. And I will say this, the mid-credit sequence, which features Bill Murray and someone else I'm not going to get into, I'll try to keep some surprises here, but boy, does that feel phoned in. That feels like they just sat down and Jason Reitman said, go ahead, do your thing. Just give me something. That's really what it felt like. So just make sure you stay all the way to the end, folks. The last scene is imperative to the future of the entire franchise. And I'm glad that they gave that to Ernie Hudson, who really brought something cool to the very limited time that he had on screen. I mean, we do have a lot of pandering to fans. And again, that's okay. But in filmmaking, a cardinal rule is reverence kills a sequel. Nothing kills a sequel like reverence. Superman Returns was said to have failed because of its over-heavy love for the original Richard Donner films, and it tripped all over itself. Well, we have a very slow build-up to a backyard climax in a cornfield. I guess. What saves the ending, as I said, is, is that tribute to Ramus. Reitman made this Ramus's movie, and even at the end, before the movie is even over, it says, For Harold. And that is admirable. I don't think I have ever seen a film so fittingly and sweetly honor a deceased actor as Ghostbusters Afterlife. That's what saves an otherwise underwhelming ending. Look, I was in a packed theater and the reveal of Murray, Aykroyd, and Hudson together again was to elicit applause at the critical danger point of the film. Instead, the theater was silent. Why didn't we see this movie take place in another city? Why not New York City? I mean, I know the argument is, well, the last two. And even the, the 2016 took place in New York City. But New York City was the soul of the first film. No other city would have worked. Instead, we basically get Hawkins, Indiana in the middle of Oklahoma. And for being a hayseed, redneck, Walmart-loving town, it is certainly a diverse one. That was something of a bit of a surprise. In fact, someone I saw the film said with said to me, they go, wow, pretty diverse for, you know, redneck Oklahoma. I mean, we, we have the African-American young lady and we have the, uh, the Indian kid in the kitchen and we have uh, the Asian boy. And I get all of that and I'm not being racist. I'm just saying that sometimes it felt a little forced. How is that no different than people saying, well, all they did was plug women into the roles of the 2016 film. Again, I'm all for diversification. It has nothing to do with that. I'm just saying that the location, not the choosing of the actors, the location was the problem. The location didn't fit the characters, but I guess we go on. Like, I, I don't know why. Why would the guy who built 
the, the skyscraper in New York City and set all the occult stuff into motion, you know, be out in the Midwest. I know there's something about the selenium mines and, and all of that. And, you know, that he built the skyscraper out of that, the, the I-beams. I, I get it, I guess. You couldn't have found a better place to, to plug in all these diverse characters where in reality you're not going to find these diverse characters. Again, that's just a little factor that takes you out of the narrative of the movie. What makes this film and what gives it its real heart, aside from the Harold Ramis stuff, is McKenna Grace, whose performance transcends fan service and nostalgia. We root for her. We really, really like her. And she is terrific. And that's hard to say, though, for almost every other character in this film, especially Carrie Coon, who just might be one of the most bland and yet unlikable on-screen mothers I have seen in some time. Aside from occasional fretting for her daughter, she is a hack mom, a deadbeat mom living on the balls of her ass and for herself. And I don't care, you know, like she was she was awful about her father when she's talking about Egon and she ends up calling him an asshole in the movie. And yeah, I know there's the patching up at the end and all that. Was she really a stand in for Bill Murray? Did Bill Murray say those things that, you know, hey, Harold was an asshole? Because it, it all seems like at the end, a lot of this goes again toward Bill and Harold making up and saying some of the things that needed to be said. And Paul Rudd, I mean, everybody raves about Paul Rudd for his plainness, for his average guyness. And you know what? He really plays it up here because, in my opinion, he sleepwalks through most of this movie and he is a poor Rick Moranis substitute by the time we get around to the old 1984 plot of the, the gatekeeper and keymaster shenanigans. Um, I mean, that scene, you know, with Paul Rudd and, and Carrie Coon, it evoked the Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis thing. And I was reminded while that was all going on of just how much better the previous chemistry was between Weaver and Moranis. I'm going to say that the anger, in quotes, hating, in quotes, for Ghostbusters Afterlife is, is really misplaced sadness. I'm going to be acting as therapist here on cinema. We are coming to the end of things, ladies and gentlemen. A bunch of us listening right now are. Look, the people that are really complaining about the film, they're, they're not the, the teenagers. They're not even the 20-somethings. They're the 90s kids, the 80s kids, the kids who grew up with the original one or the, or the 1984 one or the cartoon, the real Ghostbusters. They're the ones who are complaining. And why? Because we know our time is running out. And if you don't believe me, all you got to do is look at the faces of Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. However, Ernie Hudson has defied aging. I swear, he looks only 10 years older than 1984, than when he starred in the 1984 film. But the clock is ticking, and we see it. You can hear it in Bill Murray's voice. He doesn't have that same fire and that panache that he did in the first film or even the second film. He's older now. And that's okay. We're all growing older. You know, we're, we're not beating the clock. None of us are getting out of this alive. And I think that is really what bothers people about Ghostbusters Afterlife. The clock is ticking down. And maybe there's an unconscious anger about this because we could have had more of these films instead of that 2016 piece of garbage. If only Ramis and Murray could have patched things up. We could have had more fun over the last 20, 30 years. But it wasn't meant to be. And instead, a squabble killed it all. 
We got that shitty 2016 reboot, which wasted even more precious time and more talent. The alleged anger the three original Ghostbusters feel in the film for Egon, and they mention this very clearly, could easily be a commentary for Murray and Ramis's feud. But Ramis's daughter, as I said earlier, is on record saying that while the two men did patch things up in the very end, her father left this world brokenhearted over his fight with Murray, over something that seemed really to be quite silly and not requiring 20 years to resolve. I told you, I choked up at the end of Ghostbusters Afterlife. I wonder if Bill Murray did as well. Our anger is really fear. We are seeing things change around us and fast. Technology has totally changed everything. The world of 1984's Ghostbusters is indeed, as Aykroyd stated in this new film, a different one. Ghostbusters Afterlife is an expression of mourning. In an odd way, so is Halloween Kills and even the Disney Star Wars films. Nostalgia is indeed at the core. And fan service? Yeah, it's there. Because part of us knows that studios are tapping into that demographic before we're all gone. That's what they're doing. They're they're using us. And we're allowing ourselves to be used. I was 16 when I saw the original Ghostbusters in 1984 in the theater. I was an usher. I was a different person then. I saw that movie how many times? In and out of the theater, standing in the back of the theater, watching sold-out crowds laugh like hell and applaud. At the end, they applauded the movie. They applauded Bill Murray. They Everybody got applause in that movie, and there were screams and laughter and joy. It was fun. When that those theater doors opened, fun filtered out along with the sweat and the heat. People came out having a good time because the 80s overall for many and for me were a fucking good time. As I've said many times, I lived a John Hughes life. Ghostbusters Afterlife is telling all of us that very loudly. All of you 90s kids that didn't see the original film in theaters because you were too busy shitting your diapers or too scared to sit through it, you embraced the cartoon, the real Ghostbusters, and you even embraced that 1989 sequel. That's what you got. And then home video allowed you to enjoy the first one. But guess what? The clock is running out on all of you, as it is me. And as you sat in the theater for Ghostbusters Afterlife with your kids watching it, you tried maybe to explain what a different pre-9-11 world it all was. And your kids were not listening, or maybe they just weren't caring. Maybe that made you angry. Look, Ghostbusters Afterlife is slow. It is terribly paced and it misses a lot of opportunities to just be fun like the original 1984 film. Instead, we have a bit of a woke messaging, you know, it's resonating there and a focus on the the present day teen angst that manifests itself in social isolation and terminal awkwardness. Yes, we get a lot of that, you know, the, the guys and the girls don't know how to talk to each other and like, hey, yeah. Oh, you know, it's kind of like Michael Sarah wrote those parts because that's the role he plays in every fucking movie he makes. If you're going to call yourself Ghostbusters, well, then give us some ghosts and give us some ghosts sooner. Not some blinking lights, not some flashing things. Give us something. 
I mean, there are a few ghosts here, and we get some at the end. But a lot of the plot is a lot of Egon talk. But little to give us ghosts that would give the narrative punch it required. And all about that indifference thing. How the hell do you grow up not knowing your grandfather was a famous ghostbuster? I mean, with the internet, really? Like we needed the obligatory YouTube scene of Paul Rudd showing the kids a YouTube shot of the Ghostbusters? I mean, the entire city of New York came under a supernatural attack. Don't you think that would be in the history books? Don't you think people would have talked about that for a long time to come? How did you grow up in a world not knowing that? So, especially for Egon's daughter, but let alone for his granddaughter, because they're the internet generation. Their faces are in the phones and online. And the girl, I mean, Egon's uh, granddaughter is presented as a very, very smart young lady. She didn't know any of this. I mean, her, her grandfather was a rock star. The Ghostbusters were bigger than the Beatles. How do you not know that? Was that intentional just to show how out of tune this present generation is? Or is it just sloppy writing? I don't know. The reality is we are not living in fun times, are we? This is not the Reagan 80s where the decade was one big Coke music and sex party. No, we are living post 9-11 with terrorism, COVID, domestic terrorism, public school and mass shootings, protests, racial fighting and injustice. What a fun fucking time we live in now, huh? Maybe that's why Ghostbusters Afterlife is a bit more somber. So when we watch it, we want what used to be, and we just can't get it back. We are reminded by the heavy and wrinkled faces of its former stars that moved and spoke a lot faster back in the day. We find solace in Mr. Stay Puff, just as Ray said he did when he thought him up in 1984 and summoned the giant marshmallow man. You can't go home again. No matter how well computers can recreate the images of the time, it won't have the feel because the times are different and we are different as we should be. I've commented before in previous episodes on overzealous fans. Fans have no ownership over entertainment properties. Buying a ticket does not give you input on the filmmaking process. It does not imply ownership. Petitions, do-overs, demands of cuts, none of that is a right. It is a delusion. But perhaps it does show a lack of personal ownership over one's world, your own world. You can't control yours. So you try to seek control in overzealous fandom. The reaction to Ghostbusters 2016 was not about racism or sexism or misogyny. It was about fucking with our memories and what we hold to be beloved. However, we need to demand better of our entertainment. By not doing this, we get what they give us and we pay to see it and support it and accept it. Look, enough people saw Ghostbusters 2016 to have it make over $200 million. That's a lot of tickets. Someone saw it. Stop being angry. A lot of you were just sad. I know I was. I didn't laugh much in Ghostbusters Afterlife, but I did cry. I wept for a time long gone. I wept for the 16-year-old boy that stood in the back of the theater where he worked and watched packed houses laugh at he slimed me 
I wept for my youth and knowing that time is moving even faster. We've lost one original Ghostbuster and time is going to take the others. We're angry because it's all moving so fast and we feel we have very little control over anything these days. The internet has allowed us to see this all with a microscope. Our nostalgia is packaged and now sold to us. And sometimes it's hard to accept. Just like that bad gift. All of these films are reminders of our own mortality. And there is nothing we can do to stop the clock. So whether you think Ghostbusters Afterlife is too heavy on fan servicing or dull or just not your thing, doesn't change the fact that we are all growing older and no amount of movie magic can stop that. This is Harrison Smith. If you're celebrating this week, have a terrific holiday. I wish you all well. and look forward to talking with you again very soon. Thank you.